Yeah, and good afternoon. Uh, thank you for tuning in. You are, let's say this is shortly after 4 o'clock, I guess. Uh, maybe just a few seconds or so. Uh, thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, uh, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, coming up on the show today, uh, can mention, too, before we do that, we're kind of in the middle of our funding drive, uh, so I will share a bit of information about that uh, after uh, we get this thing going here. So in the first hour from a November 21st event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Joan Koyak, uh, Koyak. Uh, launching and discussing her new book, Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry. And in the second hour from an October 20th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Julie Paul reading from and launching her new collection of short fiction called Meteorites. You'll also hear Carolyn Smart reading from her own work that evening. Following that, you'll hear a telephone interview I recently conducted with author and publisher Shane Joseph, about the publication of his short story in an international anthology called Fear and Courage and his own biannually published local anthology in the Hill Spirit, Hill's Spirit series and uh, kind of just uh, touched a bit on the local art and lit scene in Coburg. This first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited, to honor the integrity of both the author and the piece. So tell you what, let's move straight into the Novel Idea book uh, launch event. Uh, first one I'll do this afternoon. Uh, this one in November, I believe was November 21st, so kind of hot off the platter here. Uh, event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. You're going to hear Joan Koyek. Uh, Sorry if I'm not saying her name right. It's K-U-Y-E-K, launching and discussing her new book called Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry. And so here it is. So I'm here to uh, introduce Joan and her book and Nicole's poster, which is on the front of the book and in the guts of the book are also Nicole's graphics, so this is a good thing. Um, I don't want to say much. Uh, Joan was a city councillor here. When, Joan? Uh, 1968, 60, 68, 69, or 69, 70. <laughs> As a member of the Company of Young Canadians? No. No? No. You weren't a member? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was a member of the Association for Tenants Action Kingston with Dennis. And you weren't a CYC volunteer? I never was, but I this was. guy was. Oh, okay. And so we both lived on his salary. Oh, $30 a month. <laughs> I was... I was Can't do that anymore. Huh? Oh, so you Just before it imploded. Yeah. And there was a book launch here for Maud Barlow's book, I think, earlier this week. 
Or somewhere else, I think. Yeah, it's a library. It was in the Debbie Wells room. On behalf of the Council of Canadians, otherwise known as the Company of Old Canadians. Um, what can we say about Joan and her book? What? <laughs> I thought I would tell a few stories at your expense, but I won't. Uh, Joan reminded me that uh, I helped to edit her first book, um, Working at the Bell, the phone book, it's called, the phone book, and um, that was in 1979 or so, yeah. and Joan has gone on to do several other books, the most recent of which we have here tonight, Unearthing Justice. So I won't say anything more except to welcome you to Kingston. Thank you. <laughs> Are you thanking me for stopping? <laughs> yes, I'm not sure. This is good. Where it stand. A lot of people go around the back and then they have oh, a dramatic they have a, Yes, they, they are more comfortable and they can lean forward or <laughs> can sit down. Can I move this book? Yes. yes. Blocking my view. Okay, I will. I'll do this. <laughs> can you hear me okay, Jeffrey? I hear you loudly and clear. Okay. So I'm really, really happy to be here. I thank everybody for organizing this event. Jamie and Roberta who can't be here tonight. Um, and the bookstore for, for doing it and taking a risk on having a number of books here for sale. Um, I, I, I did spend time in Kingston, but I left in 1970 to move to Sudbury, which as most of you will know is Canada's largest mining community. Um, and at that time, it was a time of, of expansion, and it was, there was 30,000 people working as blue-collar workers between Inco and Falconbridge, the two companies there, and it was a real young person's town, eh? like it was a pretty wild place. There was almost no housing, a lot of our friends were living in tents, and uh, some of them were renting what amounted to a closet for $45 a week, which that's a, that was a lot of money in those days. It was sort of like Fort Mac was in Alberta a number of years ago now. And uh, it was, you could get stoned walking into the Colson Hotel and taking a <laughs> breath. It was just a, a wild place to be. And as a young person, really exciting and, and fun. And I, And they were like that because they were expanding the mines. Sudbury has, has had mining for now for 125 years. And the, the mines, things they mine there are nickel and copper and, and a number of the precious metals that are associated with them. And I think there's been something like 24 or 25 mines in Sudbury over the years, most of them underground. And they have, um, they have um, smelters, they've had refineries, they've had railway lines and slag piles and all that stuff. And mostly when I moved there, we were interested in, in working in the community and getting to know. I wanted to learn from a guy named Weir Reed, who was the education director for the Mine Mill Union. And Weir um, had been seriously red-baited in the 50s when the Western Federation of Miners was being booted out of, out of the mines um, by the steelworkers. And he died a couple of years after we got there. He just fell apart. Um, 
but I learned a lot from Weir, and I was always grateful that I'd been able to go there and, and learn from him. But you know, out of all that fun that lasted until about 1972 when the construction was over and the whole industry just, half the workers were gone. They went back to the Maritimes or they went back to Newfoundland or they went back to Alberta at that point. Um, a lot of them went to Elliott Lake to work in the uranium mines because they were opening up. And, and all of a sudden you were sort of faced with the reality of what this town actually looked like. And at that point, Sudbury for almost 80,000 hectares was burned black by the the, effluent, the stuff that came out of the stack. Um, mostly sulfuric acid that would mix with the particles and spread on the landscape. And it looked like, it looked like the moon. There would be places where there were petrified trees growing up and, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty awful place. And, and most of the the lakes and rivers around that area had been poisoned with acid rain. And some of you will remember that that was the time when the acid rain coalition formed and started really fighting to get the acid rain cleared up. What we also, we, but there's a whole lot of stuff we didn't know being there as just young people who were working with the mines or having friends working in the mines. And one was that both Inco and Falkenbridge were expanding at an enormous rate in other countries of the global south. So they were in Africa, and they were in Latin America, and they were in Indonesia, and they were all over. Jamie has written actually a book about Inco at home and abroad, <laughs> which was about that time of expansion. John Deverell did one about Falconbridge, and they were just predators as they moved out. And I don't think we did get engaged in some of that, but what it never occurred to any of us to look at until maybe about 1975 or 76 when I started meeting the Anishinaabe people who had lived there before the mines or knew about the mines and realized that all this all this was happening on the lands of the Anishinaabe Anish, um, the Anishinaabe people, the Atacamishing Anishinaabe, whose land it was. And that where Sudbury was was where their major food sources were because the rivers came together there, there was lakes and streams. And and there were people who still remembered coming home to their hunting camp and discovering it burned to the ground or going fishing and discovering that the lake had disappeared or, or finding out that, that their favorite berry patch had been completely trashed. And later I found out that not only had that happened, but when they drew up the treaty with the Atacamishing Anishinaabek, um, they built the boundaries of the treaty area so that it would actually eliminate where they thought the biggest copper and nickel deposits were. Mm -hmm. And there's now a lawsuit from them against uh, the federal and provincial governments for $600 billion that's in abeyance at the moment, but it's, it's there because they think that's the value <coughs> that they're owed out of what has been taken out of the, the community. And that, that community, um, that whole area has produced $1 trillion worth of wealth for the people who own and invest in those mining companies over the years. Um, so it's, a, it's stunning. And if you go to Sudbury now, I mean, since 1980, there's been a major regreening program that scientists at the university put enormous effort into figuring out how to do. And they have to basically lime all those hills, spread tons of lime on the hills, and then they 
spray a plasticky thing on them to hold them in place, and then they plant ryegrass, and eventually nature takes over and starts coming back in these areas. But I heard a stunning statistic on their radio the other day, and that was that out of all this effort, they've actually managed to re-green 3,500 uh, hectares of land. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to the fact that this waste management industry, which is mining, has produced waste rock and tailings and, and uh, other effluents <coughs> over the years, and has stored the tailings. Did everybody here know what tailings are? Tailings are the rocks that are left over, the slime that's left over after they've crushed up the, the ore. There's a one of the four tailings impoundments in the Sudbury area is 3,500 hectares. It's 35 square kilometers. So they, there's, they may have regreened that, but there is a tailings impoundment which is going to have to be maintained forever that's as big as the area that's taken them 40 years to regreen. And I, I just find that a sort of stunning comparison. So out of the time that I was, I was sort of figuring all this out and working in different community groups, I started learning a lot more. And you find when you live a place a long time, and you folks will know this, it gets into your blood. It's, you're eating the food from the land and you're, you're living there, and, and it shapes how you think. And by the time I, I moved from Sudbury and took the job with uh, Mighty Watch Canada in 1999, I remember saying when I got a call, say, would you like to apply? <coughs> oh, I don't know anything about mining. <laughs> and I crammed like crazy to find out the technical stuff. But I really knew about mining. And I knew I, what I knew was that mining companies lie, that it was a waste management industry, that it displaced original peoples and replaced them with communities of people who are trying desperately to make communities for themselves, but who marginalize the people who still live there who are indigenous. And that the profits certainly don't get invested in the local community in any real way. And, and so I, I, I think that's an important thing to know. And in a way, I think the book started for me when I started at Mining Watch. And we thought, the few of us, there was three of us, me and two part-time people for two years, that that's all there was for this big national organization. We thought that all the kind of research we needed must already be out there, that you just had to find it and we could, you know, get it out to people. And then we discovered that it didn't exist. That most, if there was research done, it was in a language and a form and enshrined in a university where nobody could understand it or get access to it or even know it existed, right? And that where most of the stuff we really needed, nobody was researching. You couldn't get it. It didn't put it together. And so over time, Mining Watch became this sort of interpreter between academic stuff and what people were saying in the communities and what we were hearing from government and from industry and trying to pull it together so people could understand what, in fact, is the huge externalized costs of mining um, and where people were fighting back and where it was effective. And there was remarkably, remarkable number of places where people fought back effectively where they stopped mines before they started, where they managed to get law and regulation that could hold companies somewhat accountable. 
and where they could get abandoned mines, these big, horrible, toxic sites that are left behind, at least contained and looked at. And, and those stories also don't get told. So the book um, is my way. Oh, the other pressure in all this is that our colleagues in other countries who were fighting Canadian mining mm -hmm. companies were saying, well, we're hearing that Canadian mining's really good and that we're going to get, you know, Canadian mining companies are really great and we should have the same thing here. And in fact, that's not true. <laughs> um, Canadian mining industry is large, shapes the regulation it wants. And places where it can't do that is where we've all fought back so hard that they have no choice. There's a Fisheries Act and environmental assessment and enforcement of, uh, of health and safety because people fight back. And it's interesting that all that stuff is enshrined in acts other than the Mining Acts. The Mining Act just keeps miners from killing each other, basically. But the rest of them are all about what the public wants. And so if we look at it that way, you can see the fact that this, this um, industry, which is all about just taken from the earth and turning it into a commodity that can be bought and sold to make profits from the owners of the companies, is actually sh the, what the, the thing that keeps it from being, from just sort of taking over the whole thing, is all the work people do to shape law and regulation and policy and, and, and to struggle at the community level to stop things from happening. And, um, and so I wanted that story to be told. And when, after I retired from Mining Watch and was still consulting with communities that were still facing the same terrible battles, um, I thought that was the time when I should write the book. And I've been teaching a course at Queen's for six years with Justin Kanidis called law policy, law, Mining Law Policy in Communities. Um, driving down every week to teach it with him. And uh, it provided basically the table of contents for the book because that was the content of the course. And uh, I'll be grateful to Justin forever for making that possible to do that course. Is that in the, the school? Of it isn't there anymore. No, it was in the law faculty. It was a law course for second-year law students, so that some older students came in, too. Um, I just wanted to mention here that uh, Nicole Marie Burton did the illustrations for the book. She's got prints from the cover for sale for $20. And uh, it was an absolute delight. And frankly, if it weren't for Nicole's wonderful drawings and the great layout and work that between the lines did on the production of the book, I don't think it would be getting the reception it is because it keeps it from looking like a heavy academic text. <laughs> so I just want to say that and to welcome you here and if people have questions or comments or anything they'd like to say. Yeah. Uh, Joan, I remember in the late 70s the Ontario government put caps on ANCO emissions, am I right? Yeah, well they started, do, they've done that over and over. Right, yeah. I just remembered it was quite, now having said that, the reason I remembered is I had a roommate from Queens in Sudbury and I went to see her, and I will never forget being driven through Coppercliff, <laughs> and I just thought, this is unbelievable. Shocking. I mean, talk about the, the moon, a lunar landscape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. people in Coppercliff live nestled right up beside yeah. the smelter in Little Italy. And they, they were right beside it, and you could see the base of that huge right. stack rising right yes. out of the town. Yeah. It looked beautiful at night. 
Oh, people made out like crazy to the slag pouring too. She lived in Sudbury. Well, no, but he used to visit a lot. Yeah, yeah. People would get stoned and then go up and see the slag pouring. You didn't have to be stoned, actually. It was. It was better. It was actually what it looked like was Mordor in Lord of the Rings. It was quite frightening during the daytime, but these. Sure. Pores would come down and they'd make shapes. Eh? Oh, yeah, they're quite, yeah, quite beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Ed Bertinsky's done a whole lot of beautiful photographic images from the tailings there. Anything else? Yeah, I'll ask you a question. Because you know, I glanced at the book and I was really shocked <coughs> that the Canadian mining industry is just massively bigger than any other country's mining industry in the world or even continent. Um, where does all the income go? Does it all go into pockets? Does it help support services in Canada, for example? You know the way that things help. In, you know industries in Norway or you know Scotland help support them. But I was curious, no. like if it's that big, <laughs> is it just going into you know shareholders' no. pockets? Well, that's what it, it actually pay, the mining industry. One of the chapters in the book talks a lot about that. The industry pays almost nothing in taxes. I can remember being in front of a Senate committee on finance or something in the early 2000s, and the chair, the, it was, I was asked to, I presented a brief that talked about, you know, how the, how the industry was causing all these problems in the waste management industry, and it was undermining governance in other countries and, and here and so on. And one of the senators got redder and redder in the face and finally said, but they pay billions in taxes. And I didn't know. I didn't know. And I so I had to say, I don't know. And I went back to the office and started researching it and found a report by Jack Mintz, which is the only one of its kind, and it was written in 1997. Mintz is a Tory of the yin-yang. I mean, he's really, really conservative econ economist. And the mining industry paid the lowest marginal effective tax rate in the whole country of any sector. And I think it was something like 5.7%. And all the mining in the country and all its taxation had only paid something like $250 million in the previous year when he did that study. So we, we commissioned a report with the Pemben Institute at that time called Looking Beneath the Surface that looked at the full costs of mining and estimated not only the, the sort of how much they paid and where their deductions were and all that kind of stuff, but what the externalized costs were, the, to the best of our estimation. And it was, we were going in the hole every year with mining. And since then, I've done a lot more work on mining taxation. A lot of it's described in the book. Um, but I hadn't taken into account when I was doing it that, in fact, they do, even if they have taxes owing to the feds, they, pay, they defer them. They have mm -hmm. deferred taxes. Most of them manage to leverage loans and things so they don't have any taxes. But if they do, they defer them. And when I, I but I, I didn't know that. And I was at, in a launch actually in St. John, New Brunswick, and there was a company guy there who used to work for Placer Dome. And he was their major lobbyist, was a communications man. And uh, I was a bit nervous. I thought, and anyway, it turned out that he agreed with everything I said. And then he told a story about lobbying for Placer Dome early on in his career with them. And they went to see um, some ministers of the federal government, including the finance minister. 
and in that process, um, they were all saying, well, it must pay billions in taxes. And he, he phoned his office and he said, I don't think they know much about taxes. What, what do we pay in taxes? And they said, tread very carefully, Colin. We don't pay any. <laughs> and then he said, they don't pay any because they can defer all their income tax and then they, they agree to pay it the year that they're losing money like crazy at the closing of the mine. I hadn't even included that in my analysis. So if that's the case, we're going further in the hole than I thought. There have no, almost no mining companies can exist without enormous public subsidy. They get subsidies for infrastructure, they get subsidies for roads, they get subsidies for training, they get subsidies for, um, they get loans, they get grants, um, and they, they basically pay no taxes in return. And amounts, I did a study on HUD Bay, I didn't bring it with me, just before I did the presentation in Manitoba, and the amount they paid to the Manitoba, the Thompson, Flinflon, and Creighton governments, Snow Lake governments, all these ineffective um, governments in Manitoba where they have the smelter, refineries, mines, all sorts of stuff, was $15.3 million in 2018. And they paid their named executive officers, five executives, 13.5 million. So you get an idea of where the money's going. Mm -hmm. Generally, it goes to the, the major shareholders and who are the named executive officers. Um, and if they're exploration companies, they don't pay any because they never have any profits. So in fact, they're building up what they call a tax asset of their exploration and development expenses. And that asset can be transferred between subsidiaries. So they, you know, they've got a good year, HUD Bay has a good year, they're going to transfer their assets from their exploration at the Lalor mine, and suddenly there's no profit at all. <laughs> I think this happens in other industries too, but it's certainly, the one I know is mining, and it, it's, it's totally shocking, actually. So, no, they don't help. And in some countries, they've got investment agreements that mean that uh, lately there's been a lot of lawsuits against Canadian companies from countries like Tanzania and, uh, and uh, Zambia because they've been not only doing that, but actually fiddling their numbers. So when they take the money out of the country, they, they don't even tell the truth about what they've got. And again, they're described in the book. Speaking of lawsuits, and I'm also thinking of maybe divestment campaigns, um, I feel like one of the central themes in the book is resistance to mining companies, and I'm wondering if you could mention any inspiring acts of resistance or court cases or divestment campaigns that you've seen against Canadian well, mining companies. Probably one of the most inspiring is the Chilcotin battle against uh, Chiseco Mines Limited in BC. They've been resisting a mine that the company well, first called Prosperity and then New Prosperity. <laughs> I, I imagine the PR guy that came up with that name deserves a medal. Imagine <laughs> saying, I'm against prosperity. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, and they have, they're the only um, first indigenous organization in Canada that actually has had the Supreme Court recognize their title, their land. They have a huge title area that's been recognized by the Supreme Court where they own the surface rights and the mineral rights. And, uh, but they've been battling this new prosperity mine proposal now for almost 30 years. And the company is, is Tseco. Uh, Tseco has one operating mine, the Gibraltar mine, which is also on the edge of Shulkholm territory. And it's, it's a very dangerous mine. It has a terrible tailwind impoundment. 
once they get underneath the surface, they can just burrow along, right? Well, no, not really. This, the, the, this gold deposits on the surface. They it's need an the open surface. pit. And what they wanted to do was put the tailings in Fish Lake, which is a very special and important lake. Sandby, a very special and important lake for the Chilcotin. And the Chilcotin, you know, talked to them nicely. They told them not to do that. They resisted them. They got tried to get injunctions. They got court orders. They ended up with prosperity in an environmental assessment process. The BC government under Christy Clark approved mine. Um, and then the federal government panel review turned it down with a number of reasons, including that the burden would all fall on the Chilcotin. The Chilcotin then um, that continued to try and build up their communities. So a number of communities in this First Nation. And then um, Taseco changed the name of the mine to New Prosperity and shifted where the tailings were going to be from the lake to a whole big tailings pond on top of a hill that would, of course, eventually flow down into Fish Lake. And uh, resubmitted it. Again, it was approved by the BC government. And the federal government turned it down at another panel review. And then Taseco sued <coughs> the federal government, um, saying that they had done all sorts of things. They wouldn't. Since then, the federal government has won both those cases. Um, and then in the middle of the wildfires two years ago, Taseco started, applied for, and got permission as the last act of Christy Clark's government to start drilling and looking for more exploring right in, beside the tidal area which would have the same effect, just ignoring the environmental assessment refusals. Um, and the Chilcotin were forced, while they were fighting these wildfires, to go and go to court and try and get them stopped. And they've been winning the cases, but they're still having to go there all the time. Mm -hmm. And But they win. They win. And, and they keep resisting. And they've done, um, they, they, I think, have won the hearts and minds of most of the people in the country. Mm. And the, the other thing that goes with that is they've now just opened a huge uh, solar panel farm. So they're, they're investing in other kinds of business and other kinds of activities. One of the biggest problems that Chilcotin ran into is that the people in Williams Lake, the nearby resource town, um, were pretty racist, <laughs> really resistant to them, and uh, the white folk in Williams Lake had to organize during all those those hearings and stuff to show that that the people who were running the town weren't speaking for them, and it, there was a lot of huge battles and some really nasty stuff that went on. But I think they succeeded in doing that, mm -hmm. and a lot of it um, actually was organized by Council of Canadians chapter there. They did a marvelous job. Mm -hmm. Um, they called themselves Friends of Fish Lake, and they, they did a great job. So, and the fact that they, I think, protected that land. They're now um, trying to get more of their title recognized. And, and that's the highway there. I, I had my um, master's in social work training uh, at Williams Lake for summer oh. when I was going to UBC, and I was working directly with the indigenous community. Yeah, well, that would be them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, but the tragic thing—that's a deserted area. It's it's mostly ranches and reservations. Yeah. Cowboys and Indians. Yeah. Well, the Indians <laughs> are cowboys, actually. <laughs> yeah. But that is the highway that has 
where we lost so many murders. Yes, it is. Once. That's si the racism. And yeah, well, Highway 16 is just as bad. It's the one north of there yeah. that goes from Smithers through that. Yeah. But they, they've done a remarkable job. The company, this company is just, it's a real lesson about how these mining companies work. They're part of a network of companies called Hunter Dickinson Incorporated. And they're basically five old white guys. Robert Dickinson and Robert Hunter who died, and then Russ Hallbauer and Ron Thiessen. And they form mining companies, they form companies, like exploration companies with different names, like Northern Dynasty and uh, uh, North Cliff Resources and, and Amarc. With, and different ones of them sit as the president and the, the CEO and the CFO on these different ones. And they pay themselves two to $300,000 a year out of shareholder. They sell shares in these companies, public companies. And they pay themselves two to $300,000 a year for basically doing nothing. And then they hire Hunter Dickinson Services Incorporated to do the exploration. <laughs> and they also sit on those boards. So they. They just keep moving the money around, and when they report on the company, like Northern Dynasty, they do a consolidated report. But when you look at their financial statements, they've got like Northern Dynasty, which is behind the pebble mine in Alaska, which is going to destroy the biggest wild sockeye salmon run in North America, if it ever goes ahead. Northern Dynasty has 23 subsidiaries, and it isn't even an operating mine. But it's all to move money around and, and, and hide responsibility and, and so on. Um, they're the same people who are behind the Tseko mine that's causing this misery for, for the Chilcotin. And their only operating mine is Gibraltar. And Gibraltar does make money. It's a copper molybdenum mine. But they, they borrow money against Gibraltar to do the exploration at New Prosperity. So that they never make profits there either. They hardly pay any taxes. It's just a totally bizarre way of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, I'm going back to the 60s now. Yeah. Um, my my dad was hired by Ingo and Falconbridge to be the um, the electronics uh, the one who helped, this, this was a brand new quarry that was going in Acton um, and um, and and he subsequently and if you want to know where some of the money was going Inco, they, they were very cozy with Harold Ballard and the Maple Leaf Garden mm -hmm. um, but uh, dad he became the the, the Guys, there elected him president of their union of the union, yeah. and um, and and that <laughs> he he negotiated most of the things okay with them. He was that could be very persuasive. He was very smart. He you couldn't put much over him, but there was one issue that he felt was fair to adoptive parents. He, he wanted to see the same uh, um, parental leave given to adoptive yeah. parents as there was to regular parents. And he, he, he wanted that put in. And they fought him. Yeah. And they fought. And they fought. And they fought. 
and this dragged out and dad he couldn't believe it this as simple as this why why would so finally they agreed and and then uh, all they went down to the bar to celebrate this sign and I said why why did you give me such a hard time about that and don't you know he said, well, because no other contract has that. Yeah. And if we were the first, then they'd all have to have it. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah, well, that's the way things oh, go. Jeepers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I could tell you one other story about people succeeding at this stuff. And I, this, my favorite, um, one of my favorite stories is the last story in the book. It's about the Raven coal mine in B.C., and they, the, after the lumber industry sort of crashed in the in the 90s, um, people in in Vancouver Island um, really started trying to figure out what they were going to do for some kind of economic money to come in. And they had, I don't know, like 10 years of community consultations and discussions and planning, and people were doing all sorts of interesting things with agriculture. They had a huge selfish shellfish aquaculture um, business off Fannie Bay, which was producing tens of millions of dollars of income per year. They had tourism. There was a big, that's when people from the mainland were moving to Comox and Courtney and Port Alberni because they wanted retirement homes. So they had a huge influx of this kind of cash. And they, it's beautiful country, right? I mean, it's just gorgeous country. And so they already had a plan about what they were going to do to recover from the forest injuries they turned down. And at that point, Compliance Energy, which was a company run by some old Placer Dome people, came in and said, oh, perfect place for a coal mine. And of course, there were old coal leases. So they bought up the coal leases and started talking about developing the Raven coal mine. And the, the Comox First Nation, whose territory it was, and the, the Nichalmuth, who were on the other side near Port Alberni got really upset about this, and so did uh, the settler people who were living there, especially a guy named John Snyder who was living in Fannie Bay and had just retired there from Alaska with his, his sweetheart, and they were going to have a nice peaceful retirement. But the mine was going to be less than a kilometer uphill from the bay where all these oyster fishers were. Fannie Bay oysters are evidently some of the most famous in the world. and. Uh, and John had to become a mining activist. And so did a whole lot of other people there. And they they organized, they really knew how to organize. And they they got people from the university to give them advice. They found uh, <coughs> retired people in the community who had lots of knowledge and kind of didn't really want to become mining activists, but were willing to share it. They got, they would have environmental assessment meetings where so many people would turn out that the fire marshal would close the hall. <laughs> they had petitions, they had, they, they celebrated the, the alternatives that they had in terms of how people could act. And uh, the upshot of it all was that it was the first mining mine that had ever been turned down by the BC Environmental Assessment Office. Mm -hmm. And they, they won. And I, I still love the story because it was just so inspiring. And all these people who really had just turned, go, gone there to retire ended up having to do everything to, to stop it. And they did. So that's I'm. That's it. Is there other stories, people, or anything people wanted to add? 
Thanks for coming out. It was wonderful. Thanks very, very much to the How is the, uh, oh, sorry. So the how, how is the you know the big the big uh, collapse of the of the dams? Um, oh, the Mount Polly disaster. Yeah, like how is that kind of influencing the whole mining? Um, oh, there's culture terror. I think um, there was a tailings dam, Mount Polly mine in British Columbia. Actually, one just like the dam at Gibraltar mine that to Saquon's. Um, that was turned out to have been built on uh, G, what they call GLU clays, and it slipped, and the dam split, and the tailings, the, these water-saturated toxic material, 25 million tons of it, um, poured down Hazeltine Creek and into Quinell Lake. It's wiped out the creek. It was an awful place to see. Um, and it was on the territory of the Satsul uh, First Nation. Um, and people got really, really upset. It's the biggest environmental disaster in Canadian history. Um, well, actually, I'm not sure it was, but it's someone since we've recorded it. Um, and then a couple of years later, in 2015, there was one in Brazil by Vale, the company that's net bought Inco, and another one um, in 2019, January this year, uh, that killed 252 people. And these dams turn out to be really dangerous. There's different ways to build them, but the, the these water-saturated tailings between what they call an upstream dam. And an upstream dam, they build, as they fill up, they keep building them higher. And usually, there'd be, they'd be set up so that it would get more and more dam here, holding back more and more of this slurry. But in an upstream dam, they just build little increments on top of the old ones and they're not very stable. And so there's been an awful lot of work being done by mining engineers and mining companies now to look at the dams they've got and see how dangerous they are. There's a dam like the ones in Brazil in Sudbury, in that central management tailings facility, and there's one in Thompson like that. There's an awful lot of them around the country and their companies are very nervous about it. And governments that don't ever ask enough money against closure, you know, assurance, um, are starting to get a little worried about it too. So, in some ways, there, it's a, it's a really, it's going to be a dangerous situation if these companies start going bankrupt and we're left with these disasters, because they have to be maintained forever. We're saddling generations and generations of children with this mess. And that's happening a lot in, um, like, Latin America and This happened here, places. too. We've, there's a list in the book of uh, tailings disasters in Canada just in the last 10 years that was compiled by Mining Watch Canada. Right. There's a whole lot of them. And uh, they're not as big as Mount Polly, but some of them have had consequences that are pretty large, too. Oh. Anything else? Thanks for coming. Thank you. It's great. And thanks very much. And you just heard uh, from a November 21st event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, you heard uh, Joan Kuyak, I believe is how it's pronounced, and again, it's K-U-Y-E-K, launching and discussing her new book uh, called Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the mining industry 
And uh, just uh, briefly, just say uh, you are listening to uh, CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm going to step away and air a few things here first. And then when we come back, I won't have time at the end of the second hour, but uh, I do have time at the end of this hour. I'm going to go through upcoming events and uh, touch on our funding drive, too, that is still going on. So... Let's do this first. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table. Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. Folk everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. CFRC 101.9 FM's annual funding drive starts the week of November 3rd. The Student Choice Initiative has put a big dent in our coffers and we need your support to maintain operations, increase local news, sports and arts coverage, and to continue providing programs, services and training for community members seeking to share their voices, perspectives, services and more for the benefit of the whole community. Please help by donating online through our GoFundMe campaign, found through our website, www.cfrc.ca, and through social media. We need your help more than ever. Donate this November. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and might have just briefly touched on it before the announcements that were recorded that I aired, 
I do have a bit of time, not in the second hour today, but uh, in this hour, I do want to... Uh, well, uh, the, the main thing I want to do, uh, uh, touching on the funding drive uh, campaign, is uh, to, uh, first of all, thank those of you who have donated. Uh, it's been very much appreciated, and we've seen uh, some wonderful support out there. And what I would like to do uh, right now, too, is thank our uh, funding drive donors and sponsors uh, and uh it's a long list, but I'd like to read it all, and there may be others, uh, so I'm sorry if I've left someone out, but this is the most current one that I have. It's the Toucan Pub, the Grad Club, McKinnon Brothers Brewing, Tango Nuevo, Nuevo, uh, the Screening Room, Novel Idea, Wit Kingston, Old Farm Fine Foods, the Elm Cafe, RCHA Club, Flying V Productions, Improbable Escapes, Brian's Record Option, uh, Gray Macon's uh, Wireworks, uh, Something Else Records, Blues for Women, uh, the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts, Agent 99, Cash for Clothes, KPP Concerts, Musiki Cafe, and Chris N.D., uh, those are the, the the donors and sponsors, and also uh, there are uh, hundreds of you out there who have donated. So uh, that are, at least from what I can see right here, I don't have a list of names, and a lot of people would prefer to remain somewhat anonymous. So uh, thank you all very much for your help so far. Uh, we are extending uh, the... Funding drive, uh, as you just heard in the announcement, uh, with changes in the provincial laws uh, regarding uh, student fees, uh, we're uh, we're extending. Uh, we we really need your support, and we appreciate it. So we're extending uh, the funding drive. It looks like I see a note today. Actually, we're just going to go ahead and go through the end of uh, uh, December. So. Uh, if you would like to donate, uh, you can, uh, it's very easy, just go to our website, it's uh, cfrc.ca, and uh, click on the GoFundMe campaign, uh, or you can, and you can donate there, or you can, uh, uh, and that just goes uh, straight uh, to uh, CFRC, and it's, it's wonderful. But if you'd like a tax receipt, there's another option, and then you would click on uh, the gift queen, queens. So you have two options there. It just depends on if you want a tax receipt or if you don't. I do want to thank you all again for those who have supported and those of you who are perhaps just haven't done it yet but still thinking about it. So thank you. And uh, I'd like to also say thanks for tuning in to the first hour today. I hope you can stay tuned to the second hour. Uh, it will include a, an October book launch event and a very recent, I believe it was just last weekend, uh, telephone interview I conducted. Uh, first, though, just to kind of uh, start to tie up uh, this hour before I get into a list of upcoming calls and uh, events is uh, to let you know that uh, both hours of my show each week are uploaded to my blog space for it and will be saved there shortly after I get home and uh, will remain there for four years actually at uh, 
the blog space address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And uh, let's do this. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I can say one thing I've really noticed. There's still quite a few events coming up this week, but when we start getting into December, it really thins out. So, But I do want to try to plug. Uh, let's move to the events first. I will plug those. If I have time for calls for submissions, uh, yeah, I'll do that. But let's do events first. It's the, and I usually start off with a weekly event uh, that's uh, every Wednesday. <clears throat> excuse me, runs every Wednesday night, uh, uh, year round except for the month of August, and uh, they meet in the uh, in room two thirty nine of Stoffer Library. And uh, they're called Limestone Writers Writing Group. Uh, they support nearly every genre and uh, support uh, one another's writing and critique it. And uh, so fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir, uh, you name it, it looks like it's all there. Uh, so if you're interested, it starts at 7 o'clock. And uh, it is, uh, you want to contact, if you're interested, Dave Pratt. It's D-P-R-A-T-T-1939 at Hotmail.com. There's an event coming up tomorrow. It's a monthly series. It's the Hot Chocolate Charity Concert Series. And that uh, was started actually by uh, Haley Sarfelt and uh, Steph Kilhack uh, as a SAF decaf. Uh, almost a year ago, 11 months ago, it started in December. And... Uh, but now with uh, Steph gone, uh, Haley is, is uh, still organizing along with Anthea Fever. Uh, so uh, the one coming up, it is a uh, vetted music event. And so uh, the musicians are vetted each month. And uh, it serves hot chocolate. That's how it's kind of promoted as a hot chocolate charity series. And each month they uh, find a socially beneficial and responsible uh, agency to uh, give their give the money that's collected to and uh, this month's charity will be HARS H-A-R-S here in Kingston uh, suggested admission is $10 but it's also pay what you can again that's coming up tomorrow November 30th from 2 to 4.30 p.m. at the Community House uh, 99 York Street uh, coming up uh, Monday evening, uh, the third annual Mayor's Arts Awards uh, will be held at the Memorial Hall. Uh, and it says on, uh, I believe it's Monday, yeah, Monday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. It says everyone is welcome to attend the free event uh, where the recipients of the 2019 program will be announced and their contribution to the arts in Kingston will be celebrated. There will be a post-reception event, uh, uh, I believe, on-site. Um, yes, it says on-site with a performance by local pianist Ian Wong, and he is uh, very incredible. So there's Cash Bar, and again, that's uh, Monday night, City Hall, uh, Memorial Hall in City Hall at 216 Ontario Street, uh, 7 p.m., Monday night. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, December the 3rd. Hard to believe I'm saying December already. 
Uh, it's the next in the end. The Journey Continues open mic reading series, uh, always held at the Elm Cafe now. Uh, runs from 7 to 9.30 p.m. And doors do reopen at 6.30 after the cafe closes uh, at 5 o'clock, but then reopens the doors at 6.30. Uh, readings start shortly after 7 o'clock. If you live a bit closer to the Tweed area, they too have a first uh, Tuesday night of the month poetry series uh, called First Tuesday Muse, and uh, they meet uh, at the Tweedsmere Tavern uh, for their monthly event, and it is, again, Tuesday, December 3rd, and theirs runs from 7 to 9 p.m. And then the following night here in Kingston, uh, it's the end, uh, officially the end of the 2019 uh, season event for Kingston Writers Fest. Uh, they have a few off-season uh, events uh, after uh, the the main full of it in uh, that runs uh, the last uh, weekend of September. But I'm just going to read from their site. It says, "Join Kingston Writers Fest for final event of the 2019 season, uh, featuring award-winning author, journalist, and human rights activist uh, Sally Armstrong." Says Sally will present her new book, Power Shift, The Longest Revolution, uh, the subject of her 2019 CBC Massey Lecture. Uh, books will be available for sale, and it is uh, buy your tickets in advance, $20, uh, $25 at the door. I would double-check and make sure there are still seats available. I would think that perhaps there still are. So, that again, that's Wednesday, December 4th from 7.30 to 8.30 at the Delta Hotel Waterfront. Uh, that's uh, in the Grandview Ballroom, and that's on 1 Johnson Street. So, it's right down by the water on Johnson Street. And... Uh, <clears throat> See what else we got here. A week uh, from this weekend. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Art Fest Kingston Christmas Art and Craft Show. Uh, runs uh, Saturday and next, not this Saturday and Sunday, but the next Saturday and Sunday. And in a new location, they were kind of on the outskirts of town last year. And I believe this is just their second work year. But it will feature the work of 125 artists and artisans. Uh, there will be holiday shopping, obviously. Uh, live music in what they're calling the Mistletoe Cafe. Uh, this year it's going to be held at the St. Lawrence College Event Center at 100 Portsmouth Avenue here in Kingston and uh, runs uh, on Saturday, December 7th from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. and then Sunday, December 8th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I would suggest you go to the website uh, for complete information at www.artfestontario.com and then slash kingston-christmas. And uh, they were looking at one point for musicians as well. I don't know if that's still the case. It could be, but you would find that information there. And I've got time for one more. It's a week from Sunday. Uh, might be the last book launch of the year that I'm aware of, but it's going to be held at the Brew Pub. Uh, Morgan Wade will be launching Paper and Rags, a sequel to his Bottle and Glass uh, uh, book that came out, oh my gosh, three years ago, four years ago? I'm not even sure. Uh, but this uh, it was a wonderful book, so I'm really looking forward to this uh, sequel to it. Uh, and uh, 
It's going to be held at the upstairs in the Kingston Brew Pub, uh, 34 Clarence Street in Kingston. Again, Sunday, December the 8th from 2 to 4 p.m. So that kind of gets us pretty much through the week. So I didn't get a chance for calls for submissions, but you know what? I wanted to get those, and there aren't too many calls that I have that are expiring immediately, so I'll plug those next week. But now we are into, uh, by a few seconds, the 5 o'clock hour, and uh, I'd like to let you know you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the second hour today. And in it, you're going to hear from an October 20th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, a reading by Julie Paul. Uh, as she was launching her new collection of short fiction called Meteorites. You'll also hear Carolyn Smart reading from her own work that evening. And then following my airing of that event, uh, you'll hear a phone interview I uh, did with author and publisher Shane Joseph about the inclusion of his work in an international anthology, his own published local anthology, and the local arts scene there in Kingston. This first, though, the usual hourly announcement that occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up first, from that November 20... Or no, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I, I am sorry. I'm <clears throat> slipping over words here. From that October 20th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. You'll hear Julie Paul reading from and launching her own, her, her new collection of short fiction, Meteorites. And again, uh, f immediately following that, you'll hear Carolyn Smart reading from her own work that evening. Here we go. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the greatest bookstore in Kingston, Novel Idea. And I just want to thank everybody who helps at this store. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, and um, Bruce Kaufman, who is the heart and soul of poetry in this town, as he knows. Um, I am just going to read a few poems today, and then I'm going to turn it over to the main event, Julie. But um, the last in the last few readings I've been giving, I tend to start off with um, the work of a, a poet whose poetry is out of print. And today I would like to read um, Bronwyn Wallace. Um, but happily, I would like to start off also by telling you that in May, in very early May, um, Bronwyn's collected poems are going to be published in a massive hardback edition by McGill Queen's Press. So it won't be out of print anymore after nearly 30 years. So the poem I'm going to read comes from her last collection of poetry that was published after her death, Keep That Candle Burning Bright and Other Poems. And this poem is um, uh, one of the poems dedicated to Emmylou Harris, written in response to Emmylou Harris's songs. It's called, Where the Sweetheart Rides the Rodeo Again. 
and it begins with a quote from Emilio Harris's Sweet Chariot from the album The Ballad of Sally Rose. Rock of Ages cleft for me, I swung down my hammer out in Joshua Tree. It rang on the mountain and rolled to the sea, and it will ring when they bury me. Thinking of Graham Parsons, his death in 1973 in Joshua Tree, California, OD'd on those personal demons that haunted his whole life, as one bio puts it, and how still unknown individuals stole his coffin and burned it near Joshua Tree Monument. Burning his body, the greasy smoke from it sticking to the wind, clogging their throats with whatever was left in him of the raw mix of carelessness and longing that burns through his songs and in the same breath chokes him. Smoke settling in the air that anyone can breathe as his songs fill the lungs of anyone who takes them in, rising in Emmylou Harris's voice to the top of the charts, flowing on into her own music, Boulder to Birmingham, or the ballad of Sally Rose, blooming from his dying, as each of us blooms from the deaths that nourish us and let us go, the deaths we survive. Hearing her sing like that, my chest tightens, thick with all those voices I cannot name and never acknowledge. How I take whole lives in, in an afternoon, sitting around listening, drinking coffee, watching the light drift from the pine trees to the garden, touching each thing it rests on freely as we sometimes are able to touch. How it was wanting brought me to these poems, wanting them to embrace that voice as I embrace my lover's body, to be shaped by everything they meet, the way I am shaped by my son, even now, as he grows taller than me into his own life. The obvious, unavoidable weight of it, how we fill each other briefly, but perfectly, and then uncurl from arms, wombs, lungs, as carelessly as smoke uncurls across the sky, even the dead whose dying goes on and on. And because it is October, the first poem of my own that I'm going to read is a poem entitled October and written um, in memory of Bronwyn, who had died on August the 25th, that same year as I wrote this poem. <coughs> Those fallen leaves, pale supplicants, have much to teach us of surrender, how, wrapped in autumn's incense, they unfurl their flags to the wind. Every year I want to kneel in damp soil and say farewell to blessed things, the swift geese as they shout each to each above the treetops, the white nicotinia at my door still releasing its fragrance against the chill of evening, the memory of a much-loved hand the last day I held it. There was early morning light rich as silk, the flash of late fireflies amidst the cedars, cows' tails whisking in the amber fields, the chiaroscuro of a moth's wing. Goodbye, brief lives, ablaze with tenderness. Today the glory of the leaves is enough, for I am learning anew to release all I cannot hold. These moments 
of luminous grace, saying, here and here is beauty, here grief. This is the way to come home. And then um, I'm going to read um, three poems that have just recently been published in this magazine. Otherwise, they haven't been published at all. And um, <coughs> after 20 years, I've gone back to writing confessional poetry about my own life. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so this is a, the first one is a long prose poem entitled Peace Soup. There are four people in the car. Two are grown-ups. They are your parents, and they've been fighting for most of the drive. Now it is dark. Dark because it is the end of the day, but also because words are weighing you down like a hood without eyes, and the car is surrounded by fog. It is England in the 1950s, and the man gets out of the car holding a torch, which you wish was a giant cone of flames to burn the whole night down. But it is just a simple flashlight, weighty, useful for some things, but now it cannot even pierce the first five feet of pea soup. Your mother sits behind the wheel. She is leaning forward as if she is at the dining table, and her elbows would be up on that dining table, positioning her body for an argument, and she'd have a cigarette in her right hand, one of 60 she would have smoked that day before she laid her head down on the pillow, tasting nothing in her mouth at all, not even grief. At the table, she would have finished off the wine your father poured, and it would slosh around her stomach with the whiskey and the rich red meat she cooked so well. But now she has a cigarette between the fingers, gripping a steering wheel, and she peers out through the windshield at the man she married, walking with the torch into the pea soup. The man, your father, sometimes tells a story when he is driving the car. The story is about another man who pulls his car over to the side of the road and gets out and walks away forever. Your father has said he too will do this. One day he does, but not the way you imagine as a child. One day he walks out of the world itself, leaving things tidy behind him, though that is not entirely true. It's like he's ripped off the top of something no one wants to look inside, and no one ever can. In the back seat, you are sitting perched far forward, as you like to see most everything that happens in your life close up, to lean in as far into it as you possibly can. And if the world smacks you in the face as it goes by, you are familiar enough with that because your mother smacks you in the face in public and no one seems alarmed. Next to you, your sister sits too terrified to talk. It is a true pea souper out there. Years later, you two girls will hurtle down the M1 in a bus through a pea soup, nuns praying by your side. Your parents will have no idea where you are. Your sister will have stayed up all night worrying about you, worrying about herself carrying the weight of your care. That is all this story holds, the man waving the torch against weather, the woman fogging up the car with smoke, the two girls who grew up anyway. This one is called, My Friend is Beaten in the Room Next Door. We were playing in the rockeries after dark, Kathy and David and I, 
We ran around the flower beds and hid behind the rocks and trees. We ran and ran into the shadowed dark until the night was fully with us, much too late for play. Towards home, they grew afraid of what would come from all that running, the laughter and the fun, and all the shadows grew around their brand new house as we walked together up the hill towards the door. Inside, their parents stood together and as one. Go to Kathy's room and wait, they said to me, while Kathy and her little brother David cried. They were small and so afraid. I could not sit, I could not play or think. I heard the father dragging Kathy down the hall in terror and in tears, and from the room next door I listened while her father beat her with his belt, the hollow thump in tempo with her cries. I do not forget that sound, the breaking of a girl, the shaming, the awful supremacy of adulthood, and I was told to stay exactly where I was. I did what I was told, but then I told. And the last one of this little selection is called Shelter. My 11-year-old self is walking on the playing field towards the rhododendron woods, the edge of my boarding school grounds. To my right, is the single swing where the Lady Caroline explained to me how her mother was a countess, dark hair parting open and closed on her freckled, anxious face. Why do you not go back to America, the girls ask, that place where the president was shot? Is that not where people who talk like you should be? That is not where I live, nor do I live in Canada now for my parents have sailed away, taking their arguments with them. They do not write to tell me of our future. They do not write at all. Inside the Roto Woods, the older girls build shelters. We sweep our treehouse spotless every day, brooms of leaves, bent boughs as seats. It is only children here, and we are kinder in a way to one another in the woods. We are a sort of family and briefly unafraid. It is important who we let inside our shelter. This small one standing eager at the entrance, she might change everything. From time to time, I glance behind to the far side of the trees and the high gray wooden fence. Beyond that is the road, the world, the sea. <coughs> And I'm just going to read one more from um, Corrine. And um, this is a poem, really, that talks about um, inequity and uh, poor people. And I think it's as appropriate today as it was in Texas 1930, which is its title. Starved us off the fields and deafened us with the sawing of insects, the anger and the pungent need, the canyons, the gulf plains, the coast, the lowlands, the hill country, the basin, the range. What do they ask of us now that the soil offers nothing? Hear the thin, distant whisper of the tribes, the mound builders, Pueblo, Apache, Hasine, Comanche, the high singing of the Spaniards, the Mexicans, bleached bones along the Rio Grande, the dust of Sam Houston, the skull of Zachary Taylor, the fallen of the sieges, 
the dead and dying all across the plains. Wander the land at night and hear the screech owl lament, crying our history, our sad empty fields, how they speak this American shame, this endless churning landscape of our fathers who have lost most all they hold dear. Come to the cities in your wagons, on foot, with your mules, your women, your mangy, puling children. Cobble whatever shelter you may. Tell the old tales. Mouth the history. Taste the dust upon your tongue. Take flight from one border to another. Just keep on in the thermal lift and yearn. There are markers of the rivers east and west. Pecos, Rio Grande, Brazos, Colorado, Red, and still we thirst. And the black oil gushing out and out of the spindle tops, and the strangers who come to town, electric chairs in the back rooms, and men who throw the switch, and the prison farms with lean and beaten men running before the riders with their guns. The miles covered in cars going nowhere but away from here, then turning back and back again to the same old gutted roads with faces that stare at you like death is joyriding in the back seat. And the blacks all picked up and went somewhere else when the storms blew in. There was nothing left behind but the weevil and our gaunt faces peeping out at nothing. Now the women's work is over, they lie on pallets, the lack as another part of breathing, and the taste of charity in their mouths, and their breasts hanging like pockets of despair. And who remembers now the hurricanes in Indianola and Galveston, again in Galveston, and the many thousands who died there, clutching the Bible to their acquiescent hearts? We walk the streets, line the curbs, forage in the news, lean bewildered against brick-warm walls, outrage pooling in our eyes. When will it come, justice and respect? When? Into the long, white ribbon of road, the future careens away. Thank you. for coming. I'm Julie Paul. I'm from Victoria, BC. Happy to be back in Ontario. I grew up in Lanark County, Lanark Village, uh, not too far from here. And I'm happy to be back, especially at this time of year. It's basically a wonderful fall tour <laughs> with the leaves. It's just amazing. So I've been in Montreal. I was in Perth yesterday, taught a writing class, so I'm happy to be here. A couple of years ago, I put out a book of poetry called The Rules of the Kingdom. And it was published with McGill Queen's Press, and Carolyn was one of the acquiring editors. So I thought, in her honor, I would read a very quick poem and to begin, and then I'll read you a story from my As some of you may know, Lanark Village burned in the 1950s, and uh, I think it's still affecting people today. You know, I think it, it changed everything forever. And so there are lots of fire poems in this book, but I'll just read a, a quick one. I should have married a fireman. Instead, I got a man who burned his own house down with his brother when they were six years old. An accident, twin trouble. Now my teenage daughter breathes fire. All it takes is a mouthful of cornstarch, a breath, a lighter. Of all the ways to heal, is exposure the easiest? 
So thank you, Carolyn. <laughs> Shout out to you. And uh, thanks, Dad, for being in the audience, yeah. <laughs> my chauffeur from Cottage. So Meteorites came out in June, and it's my third story collection. And I'm going to read a story called Accidental from it. Mm -hmm. Today, a dark afternoon in February, on the way home from her job as a hotel housekeeper, Catherine goes into the 7-Eleven and buys her brother John's favorite candy, Junior Mints. She checks her hands for obvious grime before reaching into the box for five mints. That's the rule, five per serving. She isn't counting calories or points or carbs. Five at a time means she can leave the box alone for the rest of her walk home, which means she is free to walk, watch for waxwings. The waxwings always appear in February on the coast, when the berries of the holly tree glow red against the daily gloom. But Catherine hasn't seen one this year, and it's nearly March. She's always thought of March as martyr when it's shortened to M-A-R on account of Lent and the way she used to feel giving up the things she loved. She never understood how it worked. If you offered your suffering up to Jesus, did it really make him happy? As she walks along, she can hear the junior mints jumping in their box, safe in her purse. God doesn't get her candy anymore. But she still believes in some things the Bible talks about, like the golden rule and miracles. Because of this, Catherine looks in open windows, mostly at dusk, in case John is inside one of the houses she passes. She rescued a stray dog once, brought him into her suite, where he sat on the couch, staring out the window while she called animal control. Five minutes later, a man on a bicycle spotted the dog from the road and came knocking. It turned out the spaniel lived three houses down. Catherine had thought he was lost when he'd only been on a little walkabout. Still, the man was happy to have him back. He still says hello to her when they pass on the sidewalk. Maybe John, her missing brother, has lost his memory or has just gone out for a wander. Maybe he's in a kitchen nearby, washing dishes, and she will see him from the street. Catherine knows she is well-loved at work, even though people might think she's a bit naive. She carries her water in a glass honey jar and wears suede boots in the winter. She buys lottery tickets, picking numbers based on ages she's loved most, years she had the best times of her life, which leaves out, naturally, 13 and 21, as well as all the numbers beyond 26, because she isn't there yet. At 13, she had terrible acne and the largest breasts of anyone in school, and even friends she'd known since preschool stopped hanging out with her. She spent that whole year helping the librarian at lunch and the kindergarten teacher after school. She was particularly good at cutting out hearts, freehand, no fold down the middle to ruin them. At 21, she lost John, the person who had loved her despite and because of and anyway. He used to play around with her name, calling her Cattail and Catkin, Catapult or Catbird, and it was as if he gave off oxygen, like a tree, because any time she spent near him made her feel more alive. With no parents left, except the kind they visited in the cemetery now and then, they'd been alone together against the world. The police gave up on the search for him years ago. John went missing when he was her age, 26, and now he would be 31, and every day Catherine sends her thoughts out to him with a coating of light attached so he can see them and follow their beacon home. Where are those waxwings this year? The hummingbirds are plentiful, making the air buzz, and robins with their cocky attitude, and sparrows everywhere. All of the regular birds are abundant, 
and therefore boring. She wants exotic, rare. She is a speciesist when it comes to birds. Once, when she'd needed it, she'd lived in a hospital at the edge of the Fraser estuary, and the only birds that had caught her attention were the visitors, the fancy accidentals that should not have been there. A whooper swan, a stellar's sea eagle, an American avocet, prothonotary wobbler, warbler. Oh yeah, she's all about the bling, she thinks, which is a laugh. Her boots are leaking, her umbrella sags on one side, and her scarfless neck is cold and bare. Fancy, indeed. The search continues into March and April, a daily ritual for Catherine, but despite the warming temperatures and the abundance of so many other birds. She needs that waxwing, its crest an elegant variation to so many round, predictable heads, because sighting it would mean that her brother is fine. That's what she's told herself every year. The waxwing is a soldier back from war, and John is lost in action in another kind of war altogether. Oh, the hero's welcome she'll give him, the celebrity he'll become. Once a week, as she has for all these years, Catherine walks past the bus station to check for John. She saw him there once, before he disappeared, on a day when he hadn't known she was following him, and she'd watched as he did his thing. His thing was a secret, she knew that much, and she was no snitch. Still, when he looked up from talking to a blonde woman in ripped pants, after giving her a small packet and taking rolled up cash, his face had turned red beneath a blank and empty stare when he caught her watching. As usual, he's never at the station. In October, Catherine begins a new kind of search. She's been dreaming of black things, gigantic crows and umbrellas and bruises. She has not seen a waxwing all year. Catatonic, catastrophic, cataclysmic. She begins an exhaustive search, obituaries from when he first disappeared or as far as Google will take her. John Bryan, she types, dead. Death of John Bryan, suddenly. And young man dies tragically. She reads of young men dying tragically all over the place, even one with the same name as her John, who met his end by driving off the ferry dog. But all the photos are not of her brother. The details are wrong. And the drugs are new ones, some hidden in other drugs, so that you don't even know you're taking them until it's all over, just like that. They say it's a peaceful way to go, but that's no consolation. She turns to searching for his description next, in case he isn't dead, only at large, in case he might be wanted by someone else. She enters, small-eared man, afraid of rats, double-crowned, voice sweet like cinnamon. Nothing comes up. Then after dinner, there's a face at the patio door. A fluffy orange cat wants in, and after Catherine opens the door, he lets her pick him up. She can feel him purring. He's got a name tag, unlike the dog she rescued, and while she calls the phone number on the tag, Dexter the cat gets a can of tuna. The woman on the other end of the line is ecstatic. Her baby has been missing for 24 hours. When she arrives a few minutes later, she lifts Dexter from Catherine's arms, and it feels like he doesn't want to leave. Catherine begins to cry. The woman throws 20 bucks on the coffee table for her effort and makes a quick exit. Caterwauling, catapult, catalyst. After they leave, Catherine makes a sign on poster board to fit into the front window. Welcome home, John, it says in bubbly letters, colored like the rainbow. She stands on the lawn to admire it, to make sure it can be read from the sidewalk. And then she strings up white Christmas lights around the window frame, just to give it more punch. 
A few days pass and the sign begins to buckle. A few more and the letters fade. Neighbors start to look away when she meets them on the sidewalk once they've asked about the homecoming. Still the sign remains in the window. Still the lights shine, attracting moths and dust. Catherine begins to leave open cans of tuna on the porch and junior mints and bowls of bright red berries she gathers from the park on her walks home, just in case. She sits on the front steps at dusk and sings songs about coming home and a hymn she's heard at church around the corner about putting your burden down. Come to me, it says, all who are weary. John was tired all the time before he disappeared. She knew that could mean low iron, but didn't that apply mostly to women? It could have been her. She remembers her mother saying that she was exhausting on more than one occasion. But that was back when she ran the circuit, making a racetrack of the path from living room to hallway, to kitchen, to dining room, round and round. That was back when she had to sit on her hands to keep from picking up the wallpaper or the label on the HP sauce or whatever scab was ready. She's tired now too, tired of waiting, and the waiting makes her tired. At work one afternoon, Catherine crawls into one of the beds she's just made. She takes off her uniform and slides between the cool sheets and frees her long hair from its plastic clip. She turns to the window and sees her brother's face in the clouds above the park. She closes her eyes. When she opens her eyes a while later, did she fall asleep? There's a man right in front of her in a uniform. Catherine, he says, are you okay? John, she cries, and leaps out of the bed to embrace him. You're really here. The man looks toward the door. Better come, he calls, and her co-worker, Shirley, bustles in. Ryan from engineering's going to get you home, Cat, Shirley says. He'll take care of you. Catherine is still hugging the man, unable to let him go. I am home, she says, in my brother's arms. Shirley, this isn't Ryan, this is John. Then she is in his arms, fully, because he's picked her up like a bride. They move from the hotel room down the hall, into the elevator, and out through the staff doors to a blue jeep, where she's set gently down in the back seat. No airbags in the front, she asks. That's why I'm back here? Sure, Ryan says, safe and sound. They drive the short way to her apartment, without her even needing to give directions. Of course, he knows where she lives. Where have you been, Catherine asks. She doesn't want to upset him or scare him away. She says it calmly. He's pulling up outside of her home. Let's get you inside, he says, then we can talk. He wants to tell her. And look, he's smiling at the sign in her window, even though it's barely legible anymore, giving her a thumbs up. When they're inside, she gives him another hug. I can't believe you're here. She holds him at arm's length. Promise me you'll stay? I'm here, he says. I'm not going anywhere. Thank you very much. And you just heard from a, uh, on, on October 20th, book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. First up, I kind of messed that up at the start, you heard Carolyn Smart uh, reading from her own work that evening. And then you just heard Julie Paul reading from and launching her new collection of short uh, fiction called Meteorites, and she also included a poem ahead of that. So, and... Uh, with that, uh, you know what? I'm going to do this, and I will be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. The staff at Martha's Table provides a caring place where people in need can have nutritious meal for only $1. Now you can get involved in this great cause. Martha's Table is looking for volunteers to help in the kitchen, at the drop-in center, picking up food, or even being a friendly face at fundraising events. Volunteer orientation is every Thursday at 4.30 in the drop-in center, and volunteers must be 14 years of age or older. You can donate using a credit card through marthastable.ca, or you can send your donation by mail, cash, check, or bank draft. Martha's Table, 629 Princess Street, it's volunteering, donating, or anything else that you can offer Martha's Table, visit their website, marthastable.ca. Why donate to CFRC? As the world's longest-running campus community radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM has maintained its tradition of fostering campus and community culture and engagement since 1922. Our volunteer-driven music and spoken word broadcasts, and now podcasts, reach listeners locally, nationally, and internationally, allowing for community members to share their voices, perspectives, and ideas, and allowing listeners to engage opportunities more closely to connect with their community. CFRC 101.9 FM is your campus and community radio station. Head to cfrc.ca and click on Donate Now for an option to donate through Queen's University or through our GoFundMe campaign. It's that easy to donate, and we thank you in advance to contributing to Queen's University Campus Radio. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Up next, uh, from an October, uh, from, uh, I believe it was last weekend, uh, so it was very recent. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was, like last Saturday. I conducted a telephone interview with author and publisher Shane Joseph about the publication of his short story in an international anthology called Fear and Courage, and that's uh, uh, published by Exile Publishing out of Australia. It uh, just came out this year. And uh, his own, uh, and in addition to that, uh, we talked about his own biannually published local anthology Hill Sp- in the Hill Spirit series, and that just uh, launched. And uh, also a bit about the local art and lit scene in Coburg. So I'll tell you what, let's just go there. Morning, Shane. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And uh, for those of you out there, I'm speaking with uh, Shane Joseph this morning. And uh, how is everything in Coburg? Oh, it's uh, it's a nice sunny day today. The weather is a little uh, nippy, but uh, everything's pretty good here. Ah, that's wonderful. 
Well, I'm calling you to talk about a few things, I guess. Uh, one of them, uh, maybe we'll start with that because that's how this kind of all started. Yep. You recently had a uh, short story appear in uh, uh, an anthology called uh, Fear and Courage, and I believe uh, it's called Timeless Wi I think subtitled Timeless Wisdom, True Stories That uh, Reveal the Depths of the Human Experience. That's right. And your story in it was called Outliving the Cat. That's correct. Which was a very wonderful short story. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. No, it was actually written about my dad. Yeah, it was. Uh, the, the, uh, the series, the Timeless Wisdom series, I think is comprised of four books. Um, two were published this year and two are coming out next year. Oh, wonderful. I have a piece in one of next year's books as well. But uh, this year's uh, book, or one of the books, Fear and Courage, with stories uh, of people who are, you know, past the age of 60, uh, looking back on their lives um, and, and recounting uh, times when they had to make momentous choices uh, and the fear that sort of paralyzed them in trying to do that. And then how they moved past the fear by actually um, just getting on with it. Um, so I thought my dad's story would have uh, been right there because he, he's had several several lives yeah that, that's it i was amazed to read everything he's been through yeah. uh, that's why i call it uh, outliving the cat because yeah. cats are supposed <laughs> to have nine lives and i think he's had more than that <laughs> and uh you know he, he's uh, he's a rather quiet man <clears throat> he's not an adventurer as such but it seems uh that things events just catch up with him and then he's put into these very um difficult situations that he has to uh claw his way out of yeah, and he just shines as he comes through those. It's just, it was an amazing, it was an incredible story. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I, I, I sent that to to uh, the publishers. Now, the Timeless Wisdom series is published out of New Zealand. Yes. And, uh, and so a lot of the stories that are in this book, there are 25 stories, um, are comprised of um, people from what is the old Commonwealth or the English-speaking world. So there's uh, Australia, New Zealand, England, Canada, and the United States. Um, I think I only recognized one other author in there, although I could, uh, there may have been more, but I did recognize one name in there, so I kind of wondered where they were all from. Yeah, no, and, and uh, the, uh, the the stories are really uh, very tight because they're like 1,500 words a piece, um, so you really have to uh, distill your story down to the essence in order to get it in there. Mm-hmm. And so it made for a very quick read. I was, uh, I sat and read it over a weekend, and it was, it was great. Um, there's some tremendous stories. I mean, I, I was reading these, and I was thinking, you know, uh, many of these folks um, who are the subjects in the story probably are not writers, and they had, they, they didn't have a means of getting their, their stories out if the, if these writers hadn't written about them. Oh, that is, yeah, yeah. So, so that's why my dad, he's not, he's not a writer. He's never written a book. Yeah. And I decided I would write his story because his story needed to be told. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I think it was a, it's, a, it's a good thing that they are doing this series. Um, they are very, very poignant stories. I mean, I can give you some examples of, of what some of them could be like. Um, there was oh. one story uh, of a 69-year-old <laughs> Canadian camping oh, out cool. in Florida. It was bitten by a recluse spider. And, and then gangrene starts to set in and, uh, you know, how that person deals with, with the situation. Um, there was another one about a, another 65-year-old uh, who circumnavigates Ellesmere Island, um, you know, and, and uh, does this on, their, on her own. 
then, then they see a bunch of cyclists whizzing past them, younger people, of course, whizzing past them <laughs> with no care in the world. And it's sort of the metaphor there being, you know, time's passing you by. <laughs> and they still make it down the hill. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a couple about people doing something daring for the first time in their lives. So there was a naturist. Uh, she was the head of a naturist organization talking about how she had to take her clothes off in public for the first time. Scary as hell, right? There was the, uh, the lesbian woman who comes out in 1981 in Toronto when it was not so kosher to do that. And, and um, you know, it was a scary experience there too. Uh, there's the 70-year-old who starts singing in a rural community, never sang in her life, and then suddenly has to, is thrust into the situation of having to sing. Wow. Public. Um, there was a guy who was diving off a diving board for the first time, never dived in his life. He yep. gets up there and throws himself off. And, and it's things like that where you see people, you know, daring to do something they've never done in their lives, conquering the fear and, 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 and finding the courage to do it. Um, so, the, the, and it goes on, there's several of these. There's also stories of people dealing with illness, right, which is uh, the bane of our lifetime now as we're living uh, longer lives. Yeah, exactly. People getting ill, and not only people getting ill, but then their children or their parents getting ill at the same time, and then dealing with a double tragedy um, while they are themselves incapacitated. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's it's a wonderful book. I, I yeah, and, and I like how it's set up, and they do have uh, passages uh, written by you know like famous quote passages, like uh, by by a number of different voices as well in between uh, in between. Yes, and in fact, the one that resonated with me there was uh, the one by Tolkien, which said, "Courage is found in unlikely places." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was wonderful, and. It, it's the kind of book too that I really enjoy because, they're, like you said, they're fifteen hundred word max. It sounds like short stories, so you could sit down. You know, you might find those times when you can't really sit down and just really get into a book of fiction or a longer piece of work or something, but you've got a few minutes in a day or so, or an evening or something like that. You can sit down and uh, read through. Uh, at least a couple or three of the short stories and even have a little bit of time to contemplate them. I know. I mean, I'm thinking why the short story is not making a comeback these days, you know, because they make perfect little fillers in when you're on the subway or, when you're, you know, as you have that 10 minutes, you're having your coffee. Um, you know, the short story definitely is, uh, is for our times. It really is. And I could see uh, this is kind of maybe like a kind of leading into that perhaps i don't know i could just we're just moving towards shorter sound bites we're moving towards everything is becoming tighter more condensed yeah. and i could see where this would have a place uh very much so and maybe take over you know in a certain portion and, and of the other thing that's that that makes this uh, uh this collection interesting is that people are now moving more and more into non-fiction yeah Right, so yeah, you have short pieces and they're nonfiction. Yeah, uh, that really fits in with what uh, readers are looking for these days. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Well, congratulations, your piece is called, and well, you may have mentioned it, but I will again. It's called "Outliving the Cat," which I thought was a very cool title, uh, considering what it was about. So that's really cool. Thank you, thank you. And it is published by the publisher's name is Exile, but it's not like the Exile here. It is. E X I S L E. Uh, is it editions? It's a, yes, and it's a. Um, they have an imprint called Emotional Inheritance. Uh huh. All these stories are to do with, uh, I guess, human experience. 
Um, so yeah, it's the emotional ex inheritance imprint of Exile Public Publishing. Yeah, and that's Exile, not the Exile that is here. There still is Exile here in Canada, isn't there? That's correct, yes. Uh, spelled completely differently, but uh, that one is in, as you said, New Zealand. Exactly. Wonderful. Right. Well, that, yeah. Have you gotten much feedback off your story, and uh, what did your father think of it? Oh, it was actually interesting because my father lives in a nursing home here in Coburg, and uh -huh. I gave him um, a copy of the story that I had sent out, um, and he he pasted it on the notice board in his nursing home. <laughs> and within a week, everyone had read it. Oh, that is too cool. Suddenly, he's become a rock star down there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they didn't know that this quiet man sitting in his chair was, you know, such a guy, right? Yeah, that is too cool. Yeah, there's probably, most people there didn't, or maybe everybody essentially didn't realize everything he'd been through and gone through. Exactly, and he doesn't, you know, he's not a very loud person, he just sits there quietly. And then, so, he's now quite famous in that nursing home. And, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, a copy of the book, and he's been giving it, just making the rounds in the nursing home. Ah, that is too cool, yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Rock star. <laughs> That's wonderful. A couple other things I might just want to touch on, uh, especially the second one just briefly, is that uh, you had your recently, I think about a month ago, in fact, almost exactly a month ago, I think, you had your uh, annual Spirit of the Hills uh Literary, you call it literary festival? What do you well, call festival it? Festival of the Arts. And in fact, this time... Ah, okay. Yeah, it was a lot bigger than the last time. And we do it every two years. It's, uh, oh, it's two years? For us to do uh, once a year. Uh, but this one was this one was fabulous. I have to say, I was really, really taken up with it. Uh, it, it went for three days. Uh, wow. The last one ran for two days. So it ran uh, October 24th through to the 26th. And it had a fabulous array of things. For the first time, I think... Uh, and in our county, you know, we tend to be a little fragmented in the arts. We have different groups doing different things, sometimes on the same day and in competition, um, you know, unknowing competition. This time we were able to bring everybody together. So we brought dancers, painters, photographers. Um, there was a group called Critical Mass that does uh, really um, sort of progressive creative art out in Port Hope. We brought them together. Um, we brought the writers. Um, and in these three days we did a whole bunch of things so uh, if I just run through some of the, the, the things that happened we had four one-act plays written by local uh, playwrights oh wow and acted by local actors uh, they ran on two consecutive nights of the festival uh, we had a dancing uh, we had flamenco dancing and belly dancing uh, as part of the mix um, we had uh, a photography contest um, for both uh, mature photographers as well as uh, youth um, there was an art exhibition. Um, there was this, and you would like this, uh, a, a session for poets. We had about oh, okay. musicians. Uh, and this was done by, you know, Wally Keeler. You know Wally? Yes, I knew. Yeah, so he had this, uh, it was a multimedia presentation. And he even brought in an act um, of Susanna Moody when she uh, traveled through uh, Coburg in the 1800s. Uh, it was played by our town crier, Mandy Robinson, and she did a fabulous job. Oh, that is, sounds wonderful. We had that. Uh, then we had workshops on writing and, you know, self-publishing and, and memoir writing and uh, all sorts of, um, you know, anything to do with the, the, the writing business. We had a book sale. And, of course, the last night, which was my, kind of my night because I had to emcee it and I was launching 
the fourth anthology of uh, the Spirit of the Hills group, the Hill Spirits 4. Yeah, and that's what I was going to talk to you about, too, was that, so I'm glad you brought it right into the conversation. Yeah, no, that was fabulous. We had, we had eight readers, but then we also had musicians, and we had, like, professional musicians. So we had uh, a, a jazz trio, we had a classical music duo, we had a blues singer, and we had a folk singer. The folk singer uh, converted one of the poems in the anthology into song. So oh, wow. And that conversion happening there. And then we had really powerful readers, because I said to them, I said, look, we're not going to just read, we're going to perform. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I put out, uh, and of course Wally was there with his camera and his video, and he just videotaped the entire thing. Uh, we put it out on YouTube. Um, I even took one of uh, the stories that I read from and converted it into a podcast and threw that up on uh, Spotify and a few other places. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a, a tremendous opportunity to bring all these groups together and then to diffuse the message across many, many channels. Um, and uh, everyone's you know, highly <laughs> mm-hmm. enthused. And, of course, to, to top it all off, the lieutenant governor of Ontario decided to pay us a visit. Oh, that is too cool. Oh, yeah, so, and she was thrilled. She came by the book tables. Uh, two of the actors were rehearsing the, um, the one-act play, and they just said, ma'am, sit down, we'll do a show for you, just for you. And they did it. <laughs> wow. And one guy was making his debut in the show, and he said, I, I've never, ever dreamed of making my debut in front of the lieutenant governor. <laughs> no, that is just too incredible. <laughs> so they had that happening. And then, uh, so yeah, overall, I think it was a, a superb event. It went very well, and now we're looking forward to doing it again in two years. Um, it's, it's a mammoth undertaking. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing oh, I can is imagine. more funding um, from either federal or provincial sources. We applied for grants and never got them. Um, so the, the local community, the business community came to the rescue and they, they, they contributed and made this thing happen. Wow, that's yeah, beautiful. Pay everybody and meet the bills and, and so on. Um, and it, it sort of reflects to me that, you know, we can't rely on um, the traditional sources of funding anymore. We have to create new sources, given that the art scene in Canada has grown so much since the 60s and 70s, right, when those provincial and federal funding sources are put in place. Uh-huh. So we have to find other creative ways of getting these things out and getting these writers and poets and musicians and all these guys featured. So I, it was it was great. And, and, and I think the, the organization... Um, you know, they haven't made a profit, but they haven't made a loss. Yeah. They, have, they have taken the money they got and they have they have cut their coat according to the cloth. And they've done a fabulous job. Oh, that is too, that is just beautiful how a whole community came together and uh, oh. that portion of it. But then also it just sounds like you had a beautiful event uh, all together, three-day event, and then culminating with your uh, the launch of... Uh, the fourth Hill Spirit and Hill Spirits anthology is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's the fourth one, and uh, I've been con- we've been doing consistently now for eight years these anthologies, right? They've been coming out every two years. Okay, and they're always tied to the festival, the the arts festival. Then is and that when the they always launch? Since we started the arts festival. We decided to tie the anthology launch to that because it, it's, we need an event. Yeah, exactly. Right, and this did it. Because most people, who, uh, the, the way the tickets were structured also is that if you bought a ticket to the, uh, to the book launch and concert, you got a free copy of the anthology, 
Um, so it, it really it was attractive for someone to come and attend the, the, the event because you were entertained, and then you also got a book at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, how nice, right? <laughs> well, that's one. That's a beautiful. It just sounds like you... I was fortunate, and I hate to guess, but it's probably been at least four years since it only happens every two years, but could even be six years ago, could even have been the first one, I don't know, eight years ago, I guess. Came, I remember the time you came, it was when we were up at the fire hall. Theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that was not a festival, that was just one day. Oh, okay, okay, so I've never been. Oh, you've never been, because the, the one you came to was part of, there was a jazz festival on the street. Oh, okay. I think we just sort of hung our little tent by the side. <laughs> well, that just shows, it shows if you're not from there. You don't even realize all the things that are going on there in Coburg. Oh, no, Coburg's getting to be quite an active. Yeah, it's... And, uh, and a lot of people are relocating from the city are moving in here, right? So we have a, an abundance of artists and uh, even people doing uh, art as a second career now that they've kind of the active uh, working life is over. Um, and, and it's amazing when you tap into these well-educated, well-experienced people, um, you know, after a couple of go-rounds and iterations of what they've been practicing they come up with some really good work no that is just that's beautiful <laughs> well it's been yeah, wonderful so we've been having a, a fairly interesting uh, uh period of uh, artistic life here in this uh town i'm, I'm very glad to be here at this time uh-huh. as when i first moved here you know there wasn't very much going on there were these as i said fragmented groups doing their little thing and i've seen in the last 12 years that i've been here we've managed to bring all these groups together we've, we've managed to create a brand that's perfect. That's beautiful. So it's, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. That is just wonderful. Do you have any links uh, that you'd like to give out, either from maybe the YouTube? Yeah, I could I could send you I could send you uh, the links. Um, I'll send you. I have a page, a word document, which has got all the links on it, so I can just send you. The okay. Link. Yeah. No, that's cool. And I'll just yeah, uh, yeah I will include them uh, on the show when I either after this airs or right before it airs one or that probably after it airs and so i'll do that then so and if you want to include i'm sure people can purchase copies of the anthology as well and so if you want to give me that information that would be cool yeah, i'll give you the links to that one as well yeah perfect okay well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Is there anything else? Do you have a website or anything? Do you want to plug uh, uh, the, the press? The Hills website, I can send a, a link to that as well. Okay. Um, and, of course, then there's Blue Denim Press website. Yeah, exactly. I that. Um, I got my website. Yeah, I'll send a few links so that, that way you have things to, uh, to link this conversation to. Okay. Well, that's perfect. So all of you out there that are listening to this right now, I'll be sure and stay on the radio and i will give you all those links in just a minute or two so thank you this has been fun catching up and if you're ever in kingston again uh and have time i know you said you come in from time to time with your father but uh no i'd love to i'd like to come on one of your you know your readings uh yeah. I do various readings and things like that so if the, if the time and the the occasion is right i'd be very happy to uh to show up if you if you guys would invite me <laughs> yeah yeah no that would be wonderful yeah, okay good well, you, thanks very much bruce thanks hey thanks a lot show. shane yeah all right have a have a great weekend yeah you too thanks okay. all right okay bye bye and you just heard a telephone interview i conducted uh, with uh, 
author and publisher Shane Joseph uh, from Coburg about the publication of his uh, short story in an international anthology called Fear and Courage. Again, that's Exile, E-X-I-S-L-E, publishing out of uh, New Zealand and came out in 2019. Uh, also, we talked about, again, his own uh, biannually published local anthology in the Hills Spirit series and uh, a bit about the, the local art and lit scene in Coburg. And uh, I do have those links uh, that uh, I had requested. He sent them to me. Uh, uh, The first is uh, spiritofthehills.wordpress.com. It's H-T-T-P-S, spiritofthehills.wordpress.com. And uh, the one for the press is H-T-T-P-S colon slash slash blue denim press.com and then the last one uh, is his own uh, email address www.shanejoseph.com so I had a YouTube thing but I couldn't get it to work with this address but I bet he's got uh, the address for it on at least one of those other sites so uh, there you go and uh Maybe, uh, yeah, I'm going to do this first and then see if I have time to do something else. I really want to thank you for tuning in today. Uh, Again, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Caritas Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and I'm here every Friday afternoon uh, from... uh, Four to six o'clock, uh, we do stream live online, also www.cfrc.ca. And I just wanted to remind you that uh, each hour, I usually do this at the end of every hour, uh, shoot out this reminder, uh, each, uh, this show each week uh, is uploaded uh, to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends, and that's at... Uh, can be found at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Will remain there for years. And uh, coming up next week, I might. I th- I'm leaning heavily towards. There was a very uh, wonderful event that happened here at Queen's University, and if I can get that all put together, I think I'm going to air that next week. So I hope you can tune into that. Uh, it was put together by. Uh, uh, Queen's uh, writer-in-residence for this term, Kanisha Lubrin. And uh, so I tune in. So I'm, I, I'm about 90% sure that it's going to happen. So there we go. And hope you can stay tuned at the top of the hour coming up right after this show. Uh, you're going to hear two hours of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music, hosted by... Rob Carnell, and uh, again, I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope each of you has a really wonderful uh, weekend, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll have a good time. So I guess I've run out of anything to say, so at that, in that, on that note, I guess... Have a great weekend. Catch you here next week. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.